You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Genesis chapter 50. Uh, If you've been with us for any length of time, congratulations. We are in the last book of Genesis or last chapter of Genesis. Uh, It has been an amazing journey to literally go from Genesis 1-1 and here we are in the last chapter. We're going to finish it next week. We'll get through about half of it today. And just to catch you up, if you are new to the Mission Church, uh, we are going to be looking at Jacob's burial today. Jacob's burial. And I've titled the message, Jacob's Burial and grieving our loved ones. Today is going to be more of a somber message based on the subject that we are approaching in Genesis. Jacob has lived for 147 years. He is the last of the patriarchs of Israel. His grandfather Abraham was given a covenant by God, which was passed down to his son Isaac, and now to Jacob. And Jacob, at 147 years old, breathes his last breaths, surrounded by his 12 sons, all of them still alive, the family now in unity after much brokenness that had happened. And they find themselves in the land of Egypt, not the promised land that God promises them, but the land of Egypt. And if you've been with us, you know that what brings the family of Jacob into Egypt is a severe famine. And by God's providence, by his sovereignty, by his power alone, Joseph is second in command of all of Egypt. Even though he's not Egyptian, God has brought him to this place to be a rescuer, a deliverer of people, so that as a heavy famine sets in, not only over Egypt, but the known world at the time, Joseph stewards well the grain that has come in abundance for seven years, so that in the seven years of famine, it is distributed proportionately. Joseph is this prefigure of King Jesus. It's what we've been looking at for really the last 15 to 20 chapters. Joseph is this prefigure of King Jesus, an archetype. And we see in Joseph, he is given the rights of the firstborn son. Even though he's not the firstborn, he's given the rights of the firstborn son. And Jacob, as we covered last week, blesses his 12 sons with a final word. And if you were with us last week, Jacob's words were not easy. They weren't fluffy. They weren't soft. He spoke in affirming God's will instead of his own will, which meant he had hard words for Reuben, for Simeon, and for Levi. And yet he speaks truthfully, as we are called to speak to our own children and to one another truthfully. And Jacob has a final request for his sons. Pick up with me in chapter 49, verse 29. If you're there, give me a big amen. Amen. Then he, meaning Jacob, charged them, meaning his sons, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. 
The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished his commanding to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. The title of today's message, Jacob's Burial and Grieving Our Loved Ones. A somber subject. Death is not something that we often enjoy talking about. Uh, this may sound morbid and strange, but my wife and I try to do one date night a year where we talk about our death. <laughs> Could be a burrito. Could be frozen yogurt. Um, but here's why we do it. Because death is guaranteed for each one of us. And I want my wife to know that I want her to be cared for if I leave. She wants me to know certain things if she leaves. I want to communicate to her what I want to see done in my boy's life, in my little girl's life. And it's not a fun subject. But it's necessary because every single person in this room has experienced death, the death of a loved one. Some of you a child. Some of you parents or grandparents who have gone on before you. Many of us friends who have died before what we would consider their time. And grief brings an entire array of emotional responses. We all respond differently in grief. And as we work through today's passage, I want to encourage us to look at grief from a biblical view. And we'll talk about what that looks like. And it's so important for us to recognize. Remember, we were made in God's image, which means he made us with emotions because he is a God of emotions. Emotions are good and they have their rightful place. They're not meant to run away with our life, to control us, to be the dictator of what we do. That is meant to be Jesus' role alone. And so we see here, Jacob breathes his last. And what a picture. You can almost see it in a movie. There's this man who's 147 years old. Probably looks like a hobbit by this point, right? And it says that he curls his feet up into his covers and he breathes his last breath, surrounded by his 12 sons. Wow, what a way to go. What a blessed way to finish your life. And notice the response from Joseph, his son. Joseph, who had been separated from his father because of the selfishness of his brothers. They sold him into slavery and got a little bit of silver for it. Went home and told Jacob, their dad, think he's dead. Got eaten by a wild animal. Sorry. And then God in his grace reunites Joseph and Jacob. And for 17 years in Egypt, they have the privilege and opportunity to catch up over lost time, to redeem the time together. And now Joseph enters into this season of grief in which he loses his father Jacob, one of the people that he loves the most. And look at Joseph's response in verse 1. It says, first, that he fell on his father's face. There is this body posture, almost this giving out of physical strength to where he just drapes himself 
over the body of his father. And then the scripture says he weeps. And weep is different than crying. Weeping is ugly cry, stomach heaving, physical response to emotional distress, tears flowing and flowing, sobs trying to catch your breath. This is where Joseph is at. And then lastly, verse 1 tells us that he kisses his father. Now we know that he only kisses the body of his father. Jacob has gone. Jacob is now with Jesus. Jacob is now made whole in the presence of God. And yet Joseph and his brothers are left there to grieve, to weep, to have sorrow. How do we handle this kind of grief? Now, it's so interesting to me, the things that people say in trying to comfort others and trying to self-soothe when someone dies. And here are the things that we often hear people repeat. He's in a better place. Or God just, God needed another angel. Or she was just too good for this world. And here's the reality. We should have compassion upon the people who say even the most untrue and unsound of things. For they're simply seeking what? Comfort. After the immediate death of a loved one, of a family member, it is not the appropriate time to theologically correct someone, but instead to recognize, oh, what sorrow, what pain. How do we grieve with those who are grieving? How do we prepare our own selves for our own death? Where do we turn to ground ourselves in such heart-wrenching circumstances? What can possibly provide an ounce of comfort when our most beloved take their last breath? Where do we go? In tidal waves of grief, the truth of the gospel is the anchor of our souls. In tidal waves of grief, the truth of the gospel is the anchor for our souls. Now, that's not just a nice saying. It's the reality and the only reality that can actually be a response to death. It is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the only thing that can anchor a person's soul when they're grieving the loss of their beloved. Consider this. The Apostle Paul went to great lengths to teach the church in Thessalonica. It appears that some people in Thessalonica had a thought that Jesus would return, establish his earthly kingdom, and that no one would die. And the reality for Paul, as he's pastoring, as he's mentoring, is people are coming to him or writing to him going, Hey, my dad just died. My child just died. My spouse just died. I thought that Jesus was going to make everything better. What's, happened? What's going to happen to them? Like, are they going to miss his coming? And there was real distress in the church. And so Paul responds in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and he writes this to the church. He says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. In other words, I want you to be informed. I want you to know the truth. I don't want you to worry unnecessarily. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, and by fallen asleep, what does Paul mean? Those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. 
You see, as Christians, we are not immune to grief. As followers of Jesus, we do not have less sorrow than those in the world. But because we belong to Christ, we grieve differently than the rest of the world. Because the rest of the world without Jesus has no what? Has no hope. The best that they can do is try and make up comfortable sayings. He's in a better place. Is he? How do you know? Because the only way you can know is by the truth of what? Of the gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may we be careful. It is good for us to grieve with others. And be discerning. Be prayerful of how you may come alongside another person in a one-on-one -on -one conversation to ask clarifying questions of, hey, when you say he's in a better place, what do you mean by that? Help me better understand. And ask God for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus. Be discerning. Be compassionate. But be ready to lead people to the truth of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Paul makes it abundantly clear, black and white, no questions asked, that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those who have died will what? Will rise again. Will be raised from the dead. Church family, Paul says, don't be discouraged. Don't be downcast to the point of hopelessness, for you have a great hope. Because Christ has gone before us and been the first to rise from the dead, so will your family and friends that are in him follow. Powerful truth from Paul. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, that's us, and remain until the coming of the Lord, please Jesus, will by no means precede those who are asleep, which means we won't be raised from the dead before those who've already died because those who've already died are raised from the dead. They're with Christ. They're full in his presence as we speak. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's Paul's treaty to the response, or excuse me, to the question. This is his response of don't worry. And now look at verse 18. It's a command from Paul. Therefore, comfort one another with what? With these words. Not with fluffiness, not with things that you hope tickle the ears of those who are sad, not what they want to hear. Oh, in Christ, there is hope. Here's why that's so important, because it allows a person to have the permission to grieve deeply and bitterly for the loss of their loved one, while at the same time, not entering into the depths of despair where they have no hope. And both are important. Emotions are different for each one of us. We cannot put boundaries on, hey, you're crying too hard or you care too much. We would never say that to somebody. But here's the reality. For us who are left behind, especially when we're one party removed from that death, 
Our desire is to come alongside a friend, to come alongside a family member. But how many of you find it hard to meet people in deep grief? I do. Because what do you do? What do you say? How can you rescue them from their grief? And I would propose to you today, they're not meant to be rescued from their grief. They're meant to have Christ walk with them through their grief for a specific purpose. Not only does the truth of the gospel provide an anchor for our souls, but it also provides a comfort for our souls. Remember in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Paul makes it abundantly clear. He says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present going on right now, nor things to come, the worries of our future, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. These are not just nice words. It's rooted in a historical truth that Jesus lived, died, and rose again from the dead. So that we can literally come alongside someone grieving. And not just for them, but for ourselves too. Know that if, even if we just sit with them in that ministry of presence, and we cling to that truth, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, including death, well, God is going to use us to meet that person in their grief, to walk with them. C.S. Lewis has a powerful truth in regards to the gospel being our comfort and our only comfort. He says this, comfort is the only thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin. And in the end, despair. Wow. That means we can't drink ourselves to comfort. We can't medicate ourselves into comfort. We can't sexualize ourselves into comfort. We can't busy ourselves into comfort. But if we search for the truth, which is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in the end, meaning as you grieve, as you walk through the sorrow, in the end, what will you find? You will find comfort for your soul. This is who God is. This is his power. This is why no matter what we do as pastors, we can come alongside people but we cannot rescue them out of their grief. We can only meet people in their grief. I love what David says in Psalm 34, 18. Let's read this together. One loud voice. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Now there's something important about this verse. This doesn't just mean worldwide. Anyone who experiences brokenheartedness, God comes near them. And we know this because in James, there's a promise. If we draw near to God, he what? He draws near to us. Well, this verse means if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you experience a crushing blow in your life, like the loss of a loved one, the inability to conceive a child, a loss of a job, mental or physical breakdowns, 
We know that if you belong to Jesus Christ, even though your circumstances are at the bottom of the pit, God is what? He's near to you. He's near to the brokenhearted. He rescues those with a, with a crushed spirit. This is not for the world. This is for his followers. Those who grieve and do not have Christ grieve without what? They have no hope. What could you possibly cling to? What could provide any ounce of comfort? For there is no seeing your family or your friend again. There is only destruction. What a difficult message, but how important it is to recognize the joy that the gospel brings, even in the midst of deep grief. Genesis 50, I'll read verse 1 again. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Uh, some important things from the text. They live in Egypt. Uh, Joseph works for Pharaoh. And in order to preserve Jacob's body the best way possible, in order to take him back to the land of Canaan, Jacob is embalmed. And here's what I love about the Bible. Uh, if, if you know anything about Jewish history, when do the Jews usually bury their dead? Immediately. Within 24 hours. It's very important to them. Uh, that practice is still done today. Um, if you've ever wondered about cremation versus being buried and had that anxiety of like, is there a moral issue here? Jacob was embalmed like most Egyptians. In death, you move immediately into life. And God will give you a resurrected body. Whether you die at sea, you're cremated, or you're buried in a coffin. God is not a God who nitpicks those kinds of things. And here, Jacob is embalmed. It takes 40 days for the embalming process to preserve the body to the best of the ability that humans can do. It's pretty amazing what the Egyptians did with their embalming process. But we learn something profound. How long do the Egyptians mourn for Jacob? Seventy days. Here's why that's significant. Because if you were Egyptian royalty, meaning a pharaoh or a son or daughter of pharaoh or part of the royal family, they would mourn for you for 72 days. How much esteem does Jacob have in Egypt? Wow. Most likely because Joseph's position, the way that he stewarded the resources God has given him. And all of Egypt mourns for Jacob for 70 days. Uh, within chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, what we'll cover today, there are at least four different periods of mourning for Jacob. Immediately when he takes his last breath and goes to be with God, the Egyptian 70 days of mourning, the seven days that we'll see at the threshold of Atad a little bit later in the passage, and then the actual burial of Jacob in the cave at Machpelah. And here's why that's so powerful to me. Because grieving does not take place in a week. It doesn't take place when that body goes into the ground or those ashes are spread. Grieving is a process that is different for each person. It takes a long time. And life, in some ways, 
will never be the same. But we grieve as people who have what? We grieve as people who have hope. So what does that look like? Let's continue. Verse 5. Excuse me. Verse 4. Now in the days of his mourning, that's the 70 days were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father and I will come back. Uh, Here's what I love about Joseph. He's second in command. He's a dude in Egypt. People bow to him when he drives by in his chariot. And yet, he is a man under authority. Whose authority is he under in Egypt? And what does Joseph display in his character? Tremendous humility. Pharaoh, may I please go bury my father like he asked? He assumes nothing. He demands nothing. And I would encourage you to consider that Joseph, that archetype of Jesus, here he is second in command and he is at Pharaoh's will. Much like Jesus in that garden of Gethsemane goes, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Amazing humility displayed by Joseph. He asked permission to go bury his father, verse six. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great gathering. Uh, What a procession. What dignified people went to this burial of Jacob. What a movement of God upon the land of Egypt. Do you see the influence that Joseph has had simply by being obedient to Jesus? He didn't do anything outrageously special. He just walked in God's ways and obeyed when God called him to obey. And God moved and did the rest. And now you have an entire foreign nation, not a part of God's covenant promise, witnessing a different kind of grief. Still sorrow, still deep sadness, still wailing and heartache and tears. But what was Jacob clinging on to when he died? Where did he ask to be buried? In the promised land. This reveals what we see in Genesis chapter 15. God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you and with your descendants after you. You will become a great nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed by you. And I will give you a promised land just for your descendants. And the only piece of the promised land that Jacob had inherited from his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac was what? A cave where Abraham and Sarah were buried, where Isaac and Rebekah were buried, and where Leah was already buried. It's the only piece of the promise that they actually had. And what was Jacob clinging to as he said his last breaths? Bury me in the depths of God's promises because that's where there is comfort. That's the anchor for my soul. 
It's not that there wasn't physical pain or perhaps even some element of fear. But Jacob had something to cling to as he entered into death. Now Joseph gets to share that story with all these Egyptians going, hey, Joseph, you know, we could build him a really sick tomb here, like little pyramid, little like all kinds of nice stuff. It's 200 miles to the cave at Mamre. You sure? And I'm sure Joseph said, here's why we want to bury my father there, because this was promised to me. This is God's gift. And what God says he's going to do, he's going to do. And how much that meant, not only for Joseph, but to those around him. Verse 10. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan River. And they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. This is now the third time they've mourned for Jacob. And it's not just because Jacob was so important. If you've experienced the death of a loved one or a close friend, you'll find yourself crying what you feel like is for no reason. Or you find yourself staring off into space just thinking about that person. Or as you go through their personal belongings or you see old photos or just a smell can trigger our emotions, can't it? And it brings us back to this place of deep emotion. And that's what's being exercised here. It's not a one and done. It's not get better fast. It's a process. And here they mourn for another seven days at this threshing floor. Verse 11. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which literally means the Egyptians mourn, which is beyond the Jordan. Biblical grief is an appropriate response to death. Biblical grief is an appropriate response to death. I intentionally say biblical grief because we just talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we grieve differently. This doesn't put a boundary on our emotions. But it does cause us to grieve differently. We grieve with hope. And it's so important for us to recognize that grief is an appropriate response to death. That people should be deeply sorrowful, sad, not okay. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus himself in Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering Messiah to come. It says this about Jesus. Read it with me nice and loud. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Acquainted with what? Acquainted with grief, which means this. Jesus wept when Lazarus died. Jesus wept when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, knowing what was coming for him, but asking for his father's will to be done instead of his own. Abraham weeps for Sarah, just as Joseph weeps for his father. Grief is a natural response to death. When we consider when God made the world, he created the world in six days, rested on the seventh, and the garden of Eden was what? In one word. It was perfect. There was no death. God made it perfect. Adam and Eve knew nothing of sorrow. 
They knew nothing of grieving. And then one man's sin, Adam's selfishness, his rejection of God's command, and sin enters the world. And because sin enters the world, what enters the world? Death. This was not part of what God had created. And yet in his sovereignty, his knowledge, he knew that it would. And so he had always prepared his son to be the answer to death. This is why the gospel is the truth that needs to anchor and comfort our soul. Because it was not intended for us to ever get used to death. Nor should we ever get used to death. We should be deeply impacted when people die. But the way we're impacted will be based upon the truth of God's word. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, which means we have a savior who understood what it was like to lose his father at an early age. To literally see the souls of mankind rejecting their maker and the light of the world. He understood that kind of grief. You don't need to raise your hand for this, but how many of you have family and friends who do not know Jesus Christ that are headed to destruction and it's causing you deep grief? As it should. That's eternal life in either heaven or in hell. Jesus understood this kind of grief. So the question is, what can we do when someone near us loses a loved one? How do we respond? Well, Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I love this instruction because it's not too hard for me. I'm so glad that God doesn't go, hey, you have to say the perfect thing in order to make this person feel better. We would all be in deep trouble. And said, Paul says, hey, for those who are in sorrow, what should you do? Enter into their sorrow. How do we enter into a person's sorrow? What's one of the best ways that we can do this? You can come alongside them. Be physically present. Emotionally available. We can also pray for them. It's through prayer that we bear one another's burdens. That we intercede on a person's behalf going, God, I can't take away what this person is experiencing. But I know that they're not meant to be alone. So help me to have your spirit of comfort. And this is who God's spirit is. He is called the spirit of comfort, the great comforter. We are called to weep with those who weep. Biblical grief is an appropriate response to death. So if it is, if grieving is an appropriate response to death, then what's the point? What's the purpose? Is too much grieving a waste of time? Is grief a waste of emotions? And maybe the biggest question, why would God let us experience such depths of sorrow? Such sadness. Such loss. God, what are you doing in grief? Here's what I know, that embracing grief gives way to a deeper faith. Embracing grief gives way to a deeper faith. Consider this. Uh, I would like a response from you to this question. Listen carefully. Are you ready? (laughs) 
Do we need to like back up four verses or are you ready? Okay, I want a response to this question. Think about it. What can you do to rescue a person from their grief? Well, that was a quick response because you know you can do nothing. And here's what I'd like to encourage you. You're not meant to rescue a person from their grief, but you are meant to walk with someone in their grief. And there's practical ways to do that, right? You can bring a person a meal. You can pray for the person grieving. You can enact the ministry of presence, whether it be in silence, just sitting with someone, or words of comfort that come from just spending time together or reading God's word to that individual. You can do acts of kindness, but truthfully, we can't actually rescue somebody from their grief. And here's why that's so good to know. Because in our grief, our own strength is depleted. In our grief, we know there's nothing that we can do in our talents, our giftings, no amount of money, no amount of distraction can possibly solve what is going on. The only thing we can do in deep grief is cry out for God. We become dependent upon him when we are deeply grieving. And it's only in those deep grievings or in other very difficult circumstances of life that our faith grows where it otherwise wouldn't. God desires to be in such depth of relationship with us that when even the most beloved person on this earth to us leaves, that we know we can still cling to Jesus, that we still have hope that that person is now with Christ. Embracing grief makes us dependent upon God. This is a difficult verse, but it's a good one. Psalm 119.71. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I don't like to be afflicted. I don't like to be in pain. I don't like discomfort. I don't want my parents to die or to live in a world where the possibility that, God forbid, children die before parents. I don't want to be afflicted. But here's also what I know. In my selfishness, I don't want to grow in Christ either. I want to serve myself. And when I am afflicted, it's not that God afflicts me to teach me a lesson. It's that I am afflicted so I will learn to cling to him. Because for eternity, he's the one that we cling to. He's the hope that we have. This is how he builds us. And because death is a reality of life, may we see that even when we come alongside someone who has lost a loved one, God wants to build that man or that woman through this period of grieving, to build their faith, to encourage their hearts. We can learn from grief that life is temporary, like a blade of grass or like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. We learn that our time and the time of others is shorter than we think it is. When death comes, we learn that life is fragile and we are not in control as much as we try to be. Not with our health, not with the resources that we have, not with the longevity of life. 
In seasons of grief, we learn that life is so precious and it should be stewarded with godly character and intentionality. David cries out in Psalm 42, verse 5. He asks two questions. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? If we apply this to a circumstance where we've lost a loved one, well, we can answer those questions. I know why my heart is sad. I know why I'm discouraged. Because I miss this person. I'll never be able to hear their laugh again. We won't go fishing again. We won't share a meal together. I can't hold that person's hand anymore. There's legitimate reasons to be sad and discouraged. But notice that David doesn't leave himself there because he has the truth of God's word. And he responds to his own questions. And he says, I will put my hope in God. Um, I want you to know, in our vernacular, in our society, hope means this. I hope the Padres win the next 30 games and somehow make the playoffs. <laughs> that's ridiculous hope. That's not hope because that's not reality. The hope that's referred to in scripture means assurance, certainty. It's different than our language. So that David is literally saying, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my assurance in God. I will praise him again. Not be bitter with him. Not be angry with him. Not blame him. I will praise him again. My savior and my God. Embracing grief gives way to a deeper faith. Let's look at verses 12 through 14 as we come to the end of today's section. So his sons did for him, meaning they buried Jacob just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him into the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who went up with him to bury his father. Oh, there are some important things to cover in these last three verses for today. You ready? Over the course of the last 20 chapters, how have Jacob's sons behaved? Horribly. Some egregious sins in some of these chapters. A complete lack of character. Lying, cheating, plot to murder, actual murder, rape. It's all in there. It's a disaster. And yet, at the end of Jacob's life, in unity, what do we see his sons do in verse 12? They obey his command. They honor their father. They honor their father. Now, this is so important, and I don't want us to miss this, because we do live in a society, and I'm speaking in generalizations, but we live in a society where the aged are put away. And by put away, I don't mean just in homes. Here's the reality. Sometimes we don't have a choice but to put an aging parent or grandparent in a home because we physically cannot lift them or care for them depending on their circumstances. That is not wrong. What is wrong is putting them in a home and abandoning them. That's not okay. God took this so seriously that when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, he specifically said, honor your father 
and mother. And this is the first commandment with a promise that you will live long and well in the land. Now, here's what that means. I think as a parent of a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, and an 8-year-old, I'm like, see, kids, obey your parents. Honor me. Go make your beds. And part of that is true. As our children grow, they are to honor their mother and father. But I think God gave us this commandment more about aging parents than I think it is for little kids when they're walking in obedience as they grow. We are to honor our father and mother. Well, what does that actually look like? Well, we are to physically care and financially provide for our parents as they age. Physically care and financially provide for our parents as they age. Now, some parents have a nice nest egg and they have saved up and so you don't have to use your own resources, but that is not a dismissal for the care that we're supposed to give them. We are to physically be with them as much as we can. Not just to let somebody else do the dirty work, but to walk alongside them, to honor them, to give them dignity. Consider when people get older, how difficult it must be to lose certain areas of independence, to have a license taken away, to not be able to cook or care for yourself or for their spouse the way that they would like to. What a humbling time of life. And God specifically tells us, honor your father and mother. Oh, come alongside them in this season of life more than any season of life. This was so important to Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, write down Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus goes to great lengths to confront the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders have been building these traditions of men. And there's this tradition called Corban. And Corban was when a son or a daughter would raise their hand and go, uh, I claim Corban over all my resources. Or in other words, my 401k is Corban. What does that mean? It means that I'm dedicating it to God. Therefore, it can't be used to take care of my aging parents who need financial help. And Jesus is not okay with this. He says, this is not my heart. You worry about the outside of the cup, but I tell you, you better get inside the cup to clean it first. Don't you dare, in the name of religion, make excuses not to honor your father and mother, to obey the commands of God. Don't obey the commands of men. Walk in my ways, not your ways. Jesus even does this himself. I didn't think about this passage in this way until this week, um, but it's profound. Look at John chapter 19 on your screens. Here's the context. Jesus is literally hanging on the cross, so close to death, beaten, rejected, and he has the wherewithal to do this. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, who's the disciple whom he loved? John. Standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Who is Jesus talking about? Wow. He's not saying, look at me. He's saying, mom, look at John. Do you see him? He's your son. Not biologically. Jesus is making a point. Next verse. Then he said to the disciple, meaning John, 
Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Jesus knew he wouldn't physically be there to care for his mom. And even after hanging on a cross, being crucified and bearing our sins, he didn't find excuse to go, not my job. Instead, he goes, John, my best friend, I want you to take care of my mom like she's your mom. Because that's important to honor my father and my mother. Even the Messiah displayed this. How important for us to follow in his footsteps. Other ways that we can honor our father and mother as they enter into their twilight years. Comfort through presence. Be with them. Call regularly. Even if their memory is not where it needs to be. When Alzheimer's and dementia sets in, I get it. I know. I've watched a grandparent not remember anything from the day before or recognize people who they should recognize. And yet I know this, it doesn't excuse us from being present with our mother and our father. The Bible is interesting. It doesn't qualify if they deserve it or not. It just says, honor your father and mother. Wow. All the more importance to take any opportunity to reconcile in life before death approaches. Honor your father and mother. Be compassionate. Um, If they're extra grouchy, grumpy, not cooperative, have, have compassion for them. Understand how difficult this must be. Be extra patient. And then lastly, a way to honor your father and mother is through spiritual leadership. Don't just be there physically or emotionally. Be there to continue to point them toward Jesus Christ. To remind them of the hope and the truth of the gospel. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. To remind them what they go to. And that this is not the end. To remind them that God has them in his hands. And that they can trust him. And trust his word. For he is faithful in all things. Honor your father and mother. I have a quick map for you up on the screen. Um, In the bottom left is the land of Goshen. That's where the family of Jacob would have lived while they were in Egypt. That little dotted red line is the journey that it would take to get all the way up to Hebron or Mamre where the cave was that Abraham had bought from the Hittites. It's over a 200-mile journey. I know this. Would it just been easier to stay in Egypt? Would it just been easier to put that person in a home and not have to deal with it? Would it have been easier to go, hey, we're going to give them a, a really good funeral. There's going to be this pyramid thing, and it's going to be amazing, and we're going to have a really good celebration of life. But may I encourage you? How you love in life will determine how you grieve a death. How you love in life will determine how you grieve a death. When you come alongside an aging parent, and you pour yourself out even at your own expense, there's no amount of money or time that you would want to get back and spend differently than when you serve your mom or your dad. I just got to watch that. 
in my own family. My mother-in-law did it so well. Went and lived at her mom's house and dealt with like the insane amount of clutter and way too much Tupperware. But she poured herself out at her own expense. She honored her mother. This has nothing to do with this passage, but I wanted to throw it in anyways because of what Pastor Dave and I often see after the death of a loved one. Church family, remember we grieve differently. And please remember this. Value time above money. Value time above money. I cannot tell you how discouraging it is when we see a loved one die and within a week, siblings are fighting over what? Ah, It's messy. I can't point to the exact reason of why it happens other than this. Oftentimes when we feel guilty or we have major regrets, And we can't go backwards. We will clamor for anything that's left. And oftentimes that's just the assets and the money that's left over from a person, which could never replace the time that you could have with that individual. Grieve differently. Money, I know we need it, but compared to time with your loved ones, it's nothing. Lastly, let me draw your attention back to verse 14. And after he, meaning Joseph, and his brothers had buried their father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. Here's what this is. Life goes on, doesn't it? The world doesn't stop. Not for any amount of grief. Wish it did. And I wish it didn't. Sometimes moving forward seems impossible. But I want to encourage you. Life's new normal will include joy. Life's new normal will include joy. Uh, Joseph had to return to his position in Egypt. He was a steward. He had to return to being a dad to his sons, Aphram and Manasseh. He had to return to his duties as a brother to His 11 brothers, who we'll see next week, still aren't easy to get along with. He had to return to all these things. But he doesn't return with hopelessness. He doesn't return with an eternity of sadness. He returns with life becoming a new normal, not the same. It can never go back when you lose that person. But there will be a new normal, and in that new normal will be joy in this life and certainly in the life to come. David writes in Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger, meaning God's anger, is but for a moment. But God's favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night. There will be a season of grief. But joy comes in the morning. Grief will not last forever. And it doesn't last forever because we have a resurrected Savior who's out of the grave, living, and walking with us. John Piper writes this, God uses time and grace to take away the the impossibility of life. I love that. Time, meaning one day at a time, not to be soon, but not in the too far distant future. 
and grace, his undeserved kindness. When we feel like three days before we could never laugh again, we find ourselves laughing again, wondering how we got there, not needing to feel guilty, because grief is an appropriate response, but joy will come as well. Church family, as we grieve, be grounded in the truth of the gospel. As we grieve, find comfort in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Grieving is a good response to death. And we'll even grow our faith as we look to Jesus in our times of sorrow. Church family, honor your father and mother. So that as they age, you will love them in Christ, in this life, so that you can better grieve their death when they go home to be with Jesus. As you walk through grief, joy will be yours, not only now, but forevermore. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.